It's a question that every racing fan and every racer has probably considered. What do you need to do to become a driver at a championship winning Formula One team? So many people wonder what it takes and they want to know the secret. For me, it was just a lot of hard work. Hard work, sure. But as you listen to George Russell, you'll hear that it takes more than just that to get the drive of your dreams. It takes talent and the temperament to perform under pressure. What a lap from George Russell. P2. Come on! Yes! Yes! Woo! That result took a huge amount of pressure off everybody within that team and they felt like, you know, we, we can do this. It's people's livelihoods at stake. It takes the right attitude to learn when things go wrong. Valtteri Bottas and George Russell out of this race and they look like they've had a big coming together. You need moments like that to shape your career, your personality, your future. And I think that probably definitely helped shape mine. It takes wisdom to know the hard work never stops. I'm Tom Clarkson and welcome to F1 Beyond the Grid for a relaxed, hugely insightful and honest conversation with George Russell. George's life has changed enormously since we last had him on the show in 2020. Back then, he was a Formula 2 champion chasing his first F1 points with Williams. He told us how he caught the eye of Mercedes and memorably how he was in the bath when he got the phone call about joining the team's young driver programme. George always had his sights set on signing for the Silver Arrows. Three seasons of standout drives at Williams proved he was ready to step up. Things can change very quickly in, in Formula One and signing a piece of paper to join you know, the greatest team of this era without doubt is obviously a huge moment. But if I don't perform, what does it mean? Because in a year's time, I'll probably be out the door. I want to be a world champion and I want to win races and signing that contract didn't guarantee anything. When he signed that piece of paper, he might have hoped 2022 would bring him closer to those dreams. That hasn't been the case so far, but through more hard work, he's determined to help Mercedes leap back to the front of Formula One. And as you'll hear, George seems to have the temperament, the attitude and the wisdom to do just that. I hope you enjoy our conversation. George. Great to have you back on the show. How are you? I'm very well. Thanks for having me. We are looking ahead to your home race, heading to Silverstone as a Mercedes driver this year. How does that change your approach? I don't think it changed my approach at all, to be honest. As a racing driver, when you jump in the car and the helmet's on, you've got one goal, and that is to drive as fast as possible. And it, it doesn't matter if you're in a silver car, a blue car, or a black car. That mentality is exactly the same. But... Will you still risk things like you did in Canada? Because I'm going <laughs> to say to you now that that decision to go onto slicks and qualifying, I think, cost you a podium. Yeah, I think you're right. It did cost me a podium, but it's, um, it's one of those, as it currently stands, we're not in the championship fight and I want victories and I want pole positions and podiums to my name. And I thought that was, it was a stretch, but... We did it before in, in Russia in 2021 with Williams and qualified third. I was one of three drivers to do it and uh, we qualified one, two, three. So it was it was borderline. It didn't pay off this time, but I think had I qualified third or fourth in that race, I probably would have regretted 
not trying the slicks with a chance of pull. So, same again at Silverstone, you'd roll the dice? Yeah, I think every every situation is different. I thought, you know, the, the, the probability was low, but because it was Q3, it wasn't like a Q1 session where if I got it totally wrong, I was last, or it wasn't a race where if you get it totally wrong, you're in the wall and you score no points. You know, this was Q3. Worst case, I qualify 10th. Best case, I'm on pole. And even if I do qualify 10th, I thought I had the pace to come back through. So, you know, maybe I lost a position to Lewis, but that's uh, something I was willing to take. So we're sitting at Brackley, the team factory, just six miles down the road from Silverstone. How is it going to feel driving into Silverstone? You're going to be one of the main men there. There's going to be so much interest in, in you. There's going to be George Russell flags everywhere. Have you got your own grandstand? I don't know. <laughs> Carlos Sainz needs to do that in, in Barcelona. But how is that going to feel? What expectations do you have? I think it's going to feel electric, to be honest. I remember last year, Silverstone was the first race Formula One had a full crowd back. And we'd spent a year and a half with no fans because of COVID. And we came back and it was like a slap in the face of how much support it was and how awesome it was just to have fans back and I think every driver loves going to great circuits every driver loves going to country that the fans are so excited and so supportive of, of the sport and every driver loves their home race and for me I feel like I've got the three in one so it's going to be huge have you got used to the fame thing yet I don't know to be honest it's um, I still feel like a normal person i if somebody asked me are you famous i'd say not really no but then if i asked somebody else or if i asked my friends if they thought i was famous they'd say they'd probably say yes it's unique and it's different being you know recognized on the street and people stopping at restaurants and especially around f1 weekends it's incredible to see the support um but it's you know i'm 24 years old i try and live as normal of a life as I can, um, relatively speaking, bearing in mind uh, the sport I do is incredible. I feel so grateful and privileged to be in this position, you know, flying around the world, driving a Formula One car in front of hundreds of thousands of fans. I guess it's pretty, pretty spectacular. Do you get lots of letters, any mad gifts, offers of marriage? Offers of marriage? <laughs> um, no, I have not had that one yet. I've... Um, you know, people asking to sign body parts or weird things and I've had a few random gifts along the way there's no standout ones that has, has been like wow that's that's a little bit strange but it's great and I, I really appreciate it to be honest I, I had a, a book sent to me recently from from loads of fans I had loads of notes and letters in there and um, and to be honest I go through all of it because at the end of the day, without the fans, the sport is nothing. And um, my mum loves these things as well. I'd always, I don't have space in my flat to keep it all. So they go to um, my family home and my mum's probably up all night reading everything. And when we go to Japan, that's when the really mad stuff arrives, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Japan is is crazy. They are, they're just mental for Formula One and it, it's great. And one of the, the best things about Formula One, I think, is that we get to visit so many different cultures we go from the UK to Australia to Japan to China to Mexico to the States and the way of living is just so different everywhere you go the food they eat their lifestyles everything and uh, the people 
how they are. It's, we talk about sort of diversity so much these days in society and for, uh, for all kinds of things, uh, whether it's business or society. But I think for a high performing sport like Formula One, diversity is so important because if you're all cut from the same cloth, you're all going to be having the same mentality and going about your thing in the same way as whereas when we go to a place like Japan or China or Mexico you realize that the culture is just so different and for sure they would have a different approach to solving a certain problem and I think the more diversity you can have the greater that I don't know business or team or whatever it may be will become. While we're talking about culture how different is the culture at Mercedes compared to Williams? The, the the spirit at Williams was immense. Everybody there worked so hard. They were so passionate. They loved Williams. But throughout my time, it was you know, going through a difficult period. 2019, it was not a year of performance. It was a year of survival. 2020, when the pandemic hit, the team had to do everything it could to survive and just to, to stay afloat and not, not go bankrupt. And that paid such a huge toll on, on everybody within the company. And obviously now through the sale of the company to the takeover and now with the change of ownership, you know, that, that really is a team on the up and it takes time to refine everything. Whereas at a team like Mercedes, they've had so much success. Toto's been at the helm for so long and the culture is sort of ingrained within everybody here. And it's like a well-oiled machine just working on all cylinders always. And I knew how excellent this team was. I knew how talented everybody was. But it's been quite a reminder since joining the team, the level at which they operate. And it's been truly sort of inspiring for me to see there's 2,000 people given everything they can to make two fast race cars and their priorities are you know racing 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 and they just want to win and that's pretty pretty special does this place have the same level of intimacy does it f- have the same family atmosphere that williams had it's definitely different um i would say it's it feels very much like um a family team here but you know williams was different because it it genuinely was a family run business Obviously, the scale of which Mercedes operate compared to Williams is substantially larger. There's a, there's a lot of people within Mercedes who have been here a long time, but I'd say the majority of people at Williams, when I when I went around the factory always and I was meeting people for the first time, everybody I met had been there 15, 20, 25, 30 years. And that seemed to be the case throughout the whole factory. Whereas there's a lot of core people here, especially the race team, have been here since the Honda days and through the success of Braun but still there's lots of fresh and new energy coming in and bringing, bringing great things to the team. And in terms of workload, how much of a step up has this been? Uh, it's fair to say it's been a bit of a step up, um, mainly from the marketing side, from the on-track side and my preparations for a race weekend and everything performance-driven, there's been no change because for me, I was doing absolutely everything I could at Williams to achieve the maximum. And that's absolutely what I'm doing again here at Mercedes. And that's what 
mental and physical preparation for a race? Yeah, physical and mental is one thing, but the workload with uh, the team with the simulator, doing the debriefs after races, preparing for the events, doing whatever is necessary, whatever we believe is necessary, sorry, to, to bring the maximum performance to to the track. But at Mercedes, you know, this is a global mega brand that we have tens and tens of top level sponsors who are um they are the, the reason we get to go racing you know without the sponsors supporting us we wouldn't be able to make the cars that we're, we're making today and obviously we need to to give back with that and to um yeah i'd say to put it into perspective i've probably done more marketing events and activities in my first month at mercedes compared to three years at Williams. So <laughs> it's, um, but, but it also goes to show- Do you enjoy that side of it at all? Um, I, I'd say enjoy is a, is a strong <laughs> word, but it's, it's something I recognize that has to be done because they're the ones supporting us and you can't just be take, take, take. And um, this truly is a team effort and it goes from every single department I was going to say, it also goes to show the, the struggles that Williams went through because the team couldn't find sponsorship. And you're either on this upward spiral or downward spiral. And unfortunately, at Williams, the results weren't good. Sponsors pulled out. You don't have the money to reinvest into the team. Performance gets worse. Sponsors are even less interested. And you're just on this downward slope. And it's so difficult to recover from that. Now, George, there's a few moments I'd love to just talk through uh, that have taken place since you were last on the pod. And probably the most significant of them is that run out that you had in the Mercedes at Sakir in, in 2020 when you subbed for, for Lewis when he had COVID. George Russell now with a commanding lead of this Grand Prix, surely. George, we're going to need to box box. We have a mixed tyre set on the car. No! Looks like a real left puncture. Looks like real left no. puncture. Is it a slow puncher for George Russell, who's 2.2 seconds away from the race lead? He looked like he was going to be able to close down the gap. He's led so many laps today, but it's going to amount to nothing for George Russell. Guys, I don't know what to say. I was taken away from us twice. I'm absolutely gutted, but... We'll give this opportunity again. I, I hope we get this opportunity again. Thank you. How do you reflect on that performance now? I thought it was pretty decent. Just the 20 milliseconds behind Valtteri in qualifying. Yeah, I mean, I was, that was, it was kind of like a life lesson for me that everything's relative because I went and scored my best ever result for Williams of seventh in the Hungarian Grand Prix. And, you know, I was breaking down in tears of emotion because of everything we'd been through. And finishing anywhere inside the top 12 for us was a mega result. And I went to Sakir and I qualified second and I was disappointed. So because I knew what was possible, I knew pole position was, was possible. It just sort of taught me, you know, everything is is relative and doesn't matter what position you're in, you just need to, to maximise it. Did you surprise yourself just at how quickly you got up to speed? Because tell me if I'm wrong, you were told on what, the Monday before the race? I think it was, well, it was midnight of Tuesday. Tuesday so that's midnight. not much prep time 
No, it wasn't at all. No, I mean... <laughs> Although I suppose, had you been on the sim here at Brackley? No, I hadn't. Did you know that? Right, so it really was a step into the unknown. Yeah, it really was. I had to sort of relearn all of the steering wheel settings. I had to do my seat fit. I didn't fit in the seat. I had to wear um, smaller shoes because my feet were too big for the car. So it was, yeah, a very last minute scenario. And I, I sort of went in with no expectations. I just saw it as an opportunity because if I didn't, perform well then well nobody really expected me to on such late notice on a circuit that nobody had raced at before and such a short lap it's easy you know one small mistake would make a huge difference but then I thought you know this is my chance to sort of prove why I feel like I need to be in this race seat and um yeah went for it and how quickly did you get up to speed with Bono your race engineer that weekend yeah Bono was great you know he's he's got a very soothing voice to him uh, he's, I does, feel like does that, does that make a difference when you're in the car how, how are you spoken to I guess so subconsciously if somebody's if you can hear your engineer's a bit erratic and stressed um, that's going to filter down into you but if he's a bit more relaxed and I feel like Bono needs to be sort of reading uh, the sleep podcast <laughs> at night to, to, you know he's got such a soothing, soothing voice but no but Bono was great and that whole team was great but because I'd known the team so well for so long, I kind of just got straight in, in terms of building most personal relationships, they were already built. So it was just sort of learning what to do with the car. And instead of trying to learn a million and one things, I just sort of said to Bono, I'll let you just tell me what to do. When I'm on track, just, I don't want to memorize everything because it's going to be too much. Just tell me as much as as you can when I'm driving. I don't mind um, how much you talk to me. Just just keep talking to me because I'm not going to remember everything. And I've already, you know, the steering wheel is completely different to my Williams one. I might make a few little mistakes and um, and whatnot. But no, it was it was definitely a good weekend. And obviously it was a shame not to win. Oh, how gutted were you? I think um, everything works out for a reason. And you know, obviously it would have been a bit of a fairy tale coming in and winning and, and even after the pit stop muddle up when um I had Valtteri's tires on, you know, we could have won for the second time and then get a puncher. Can you remember how bad was the puncher? It was a slow puncher, wasn't it? It wasn't yeah. a no, instantaneous yeah, we, no, 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 it was yeah. just losing losing you pressure. Could feel so that. You were feeling it I, I felt something and they could see it in the data, so um yeah, it, if you went over a curb it it probably would have just gone. And, and it was just, it just kept going. So, but kind of knowing what you know now about just how hard it is to win, do you reflect on that race going? God, yeah, well, it's make it even harder to to accept in a way. I dream of being a Formula One world champion. And I dream of winning Formula One races, but I guess it's all sort of relative. If I was teammates with somebody who's winning fifteen races a year and I'm winning five races a year, I wouldn't be that happy and proud about my achievements but if I was totally outperforming the car and on the podium every single weekend and winning a couple of races here and there maybe if you've won one race or two races you feel more satisfied and pleased and proud of the job you have achieved as such so as I said I was disappointed with second there but when I qualified fourth in Barcelona I was ecstatic it's all relative it will work out, I'm sure. And what did you think of the track layout at Saki? The short track, as you say. Yeah, I, 
I liked it. I thought that chicane, the where, fast chicane, yeah, the one where I had the overtake on on Valtteri. I thought that was one of the best corners I'd ever driven. It was uphill. You had a bit of uh, compression, a little bit cambered through the left, and then you went over a crest into the right, and that was just really. It was quite bumpy on the way into that corner as well, and now I enjoyed it. I don't think you'd want a track like that every week, but it mixed things up a bit. Does doesn't it? Now you overtook Valtteri there. Another moment that's happened since you were last on the pod I did want to talk to you about was Imola 21, when uh, you and Valtteri came together. Valtteri Bottas and George Russell out of this race, and they look like they've had a big coming together. So he's going for the overtake, gets onto the grass, gets a tank slapper, runs straight into Bottas. There was so much emotion flowing through both of you after that. How do you reflect on that now? Yeah, it was a an emotional day, I guess. I mean, maybe I need to paint a bit of background. You were very much being linked to the team back then. So there was all this sort of undercurrent of stuff going on. So, of course, it was a media dream in a way. Oh, my goodness. The, yeah. You know, the guy's going to come and it had to be Valtteri in a kind, yeah. of funny kind of way. None of that went through my mind. The one thing that went through my mind was I'm, a, I'm in a Williams. We've not scored a point in however many races and years. And that one overtake can be the difference between 10th and 9th in the constructors, which would be you know, millions and millions of pounds worth of of prize money for the team, which can totally transform a team. And, you know, whenever I had half an opportunity to score points for a Williams, I was 120% going to go for it. Everything on the table. And that's just what you had to do. Now, in hindsight, <laughs> seeing that it was Valtteri, seeing that it was a Mercedes, taking all of the conditions into account and the fact that he had a far superior car to me and probably would have just overtaken me four laps later, it was a bit of an audacious overtake attempt. But when you have a crash at over 200 miles an hour, you know, I think it was 330k, when I spun down the straight, crash into the side of him, carbon flying everywhere, going sideways down the straight, not knowing if someone's going to crash into me, if I'm going to hit the wall. You know, your heart is pumping. And I felt at the time, rightly or wrongly, that he could have left me a bit more room and he probably would have left me a bit more room knowing the closing speed and the conditions and everything had it been anywhere, anywhere else. Now, whether that's right or wrong, who knows? But they were the thoughts that went through my mind during the time. And yeah, I think you need moments like that to sort of, shape your career your personality your future and I think that probably definitely helped shape mine now look what did Jos Capito your boss say he said um, if that happened again go for it and wouldn't change anything Jos was one who was I wouldn't say do or die but in the position we were in at Williams it was kind of do or die because we didn't have a car that was capable of points. So we had to throw absolutely everything on the table. And um, so he had no concerns whatsoever, but obviously Toto on the other hand was uh, slightly uh, of slightly different opinion, which was totally uh, understandable as well. Let's go on next to Belgium. Last year, you're on the front row of the grid. Absolutely brilliant qualifying. For the podium, you know, we only did two laps. Did it feel a bit of a hollow podium as a result? And did Australia 2022 feel like your first proper podium? No, for me, that Spa 2021 felt like my first podium because the achievement 
on the Saturday was podium worthy, even victory worthy. It's a stonking lap. Now you've out-qualified Mr Hamilton. George Russell. P2. Come on! Yes! Yes! Woo! Yes, guys! Oh my God! That was a lap. Amazing, guys. Amazing. Well done, everybody. Well done. Just fantastic, George. Well, awesome. The whole team did a fantastic job and you were outstanding. Thanks so much. You so much deserve that. Congratulations, everyone. <sighs> that was a stomping lap. Was that your best lap of last year? Yeah, I did some I'd, stunners. Yeah, I'd, I'd say, yeah, that's definitely, yeah, that's sure, all things considered. It definitely, it definitely was. You know, that was, um, such a tough time with with Williams and we were going through you know the change of ownership the difficult on track performance and everybody was under pressure people were worried about you know what's the future of their job looking like are they going to be losing their 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 roles we don't know what's going to happen now with um you know new owners on board you know they might be shaking things up who who knows and that result not only signified you know what a great job everybody did uh, on that weekend but took a huge amount of pressure off everybody within that team and they felt like you know we we can do this and for me knowing that I played a role in that means a huge amount so it's more than you know it's people's livelihoods at stake sometimes and um I think when you're a formula 1 fan when I was a formula 1 fan watching formula 1 week in week out these are things you don't really appreciate. You were on cloud nine all weekend for various different reasons. A, that performance. But can we just go into a bit more detail about uh, the signing of the contracts three days before the race? What actually happens? Do, do you, are you in Toto's office and you sign it with him? Or is it are you just sat at home and you print it out and send it, send it back via email? Just, can you remember any yeah, details? I, I, it was, um, I'd say probably a little bit unorthodox because I was a Mercedes junior driver. And I've been part of this family for so long. Since Formula 2, the sort of plan was three years at Williams and then jump in a Mercedes. And Toto always said to me, just keep doing your job on track. Just keep doing what you're doing and you'll be in the car. And then obviously we had Sakia 2020, which was eight months prior. Is that the moment that sealed the deal, do you think? I think, I think they've always believed in me and um, that's something I feel so fortunate to have because um, they're never trying to put me on the spot and test me to see if you crack. They want to build you up. They want to uh, make sure you fulfill your potential. But I think when we signed with Williams back in 2018, this was a team bearing in mind that I've just spent three years scoring podiums finishing P3, P3, P5 in the constructors. And then they had a very bad year in 2018 where they finished last. But we thought this was a team at the time that can bounce back from this and they'll be back in the P5 to P3 region of competitiveness. So we all sort of agreed that three years was you know, a good period. You'd you know, be fighting for points, maybe for podiums or whatever. In hindsight, um, three years driving around on my own at the back of a grid was was too long and um but unfortunately claire did quite a good job <laughs> at the, the contract negotiations and there was sort of no 
no way out. But when I look at this with the benefit of hindsight, I think joining Mercedes last year or even in 2020 would have been incredibly tough because, you know, going up against Lewis when that car has been evolved to suit his style of driving um, over so many years, you know, that was his baby as such. Whereas now it's, you know, fresh sheet of paper for everybody. Everybody's starting from scratch. Uh, And this was, I'd say, probably the right time. It's interesting, isn't it? How when you look down the grid at the intra-team battles, there is definitely one driver, it seems, in each team, less so yours. But, you know, Charles Leclerc does seem to have the jump on on Carlos at the minute. You know, Lando against uh, Daniel Ricciardo. It seems these new regs have allowed the faster guys to just stamp their authority a bit. Yeah, I don't don't really have an answer to that. I think everybody on that grid, um, or the the far majority of the drivers on this grid, are all capable of winning races, all capable of winning championships. And they've all shown, you know, their moments of of greatness. But to do that consistently over a season, there's a lot more to it than just jumping in and just driving fast. And, you know, psychologically, you need to be in the right space. Uh, You need to be on the right foot with um, the car and the setup and if you find yourself in a bit of a, a downward spiral it's it's sometimes difficult to get out of that now look back to the contract so it was always part of the deal to do three at Williams and then move up to here but still not, not necessarily part of a deal oh, but that was the plan the plan but still it happens and the moment that you put ink to paper that must have been a huge moment for you yeah it was definitely a huge moment no doubt but I like to look at things a bit more objectively and things can change very quickly in in Formula One and signing a piece of paper to join you know the greatest team of this era without doubt is obviously a huge moment but if I don't perform and I go and get my my ass kicked by the greatest driver of all time what does it mean because in a year's time I'll probably be out the door so that was a huge moment it was a huge step on my ladder but it's sort of like the um, the image of the guy climbing the mountain. And he thinks he's at the top, and then he looks up, and and the peaks miles away. And then you get there, and there's another peak, and that's kind of the way I I looked at it. It's there's a lot to be uh, to celebrate for a moment like that. I want to be a world champion, and I want to win races. And signing that contract didn't guarantee anything. And it's going to be George Russell who will finish in third. It's yet another stunning job, but maintaining his 100% record of finishing top five in the points at F3 Grand Prix this year. Remarkable series of results in a car we know is not as competitive as the Red Bull and the Ferrari, but well done to George Russell. Now, George, what about your own performance this year? Have you been surprised just how well you've stacked up against Lewis? Uh, I don't know, really. I think what were honestly, your expectations coming in? I had zero expectations. I think I went into this season truly wanting to focus on myself. And I always believed that um, I'd be able to get to a, a great potential once I got a few races under my belt and understood the car and being able to maximise that. So I kind of accepted prior to the season 
Well, if I'm two temps behind the greatest driver of all time in the opening few races, it's no big deal. If I'm the same pace, it's no big deal. And if I'm ahead, it's no big deal because I'm just going to focus on myself and try and get the most out of that. Yeah, I think it's been a relatively good start to the season. Must have done your confidence an awful lot of good. Yeah, I guess so. Obviously, is that my confidence more good than if I started on the back foot and if I was behind and I think it's been clear over the past few years it's not easy changing teams and going somewhere new when there's already a established driver in the other other side of the garage and at the end of the, end of the day this is you know Lewis's territory he's been here for 10 years he's won however many championships with the team and they've had so much success together so I never thought it was going to be easy. When you look at his data, what does he do differently to you? There are some traits that he definitely carries that are really intriguing for me. And I'm, I'm not going to share those now because I'm the only driver um, on this grid who has the luxury of being teammates with the greatest driver of all, all time. And prior to this season, I um, I was just thinking about tennis and watching Nadal win the Australian Open and just seeing how he plays and then thinking about Federer and then thinking about Djokovic. You've got three incredibly great, the, probably the three greatest tennis players of all time with three totally different approaches to their game. And I think to be the best or to at least be the best version of yourself, you shouldn't go out there and copy what, the best has done because he's the best because he's got the best out of himself and whatever he does works for him but in the world of tennis who do you copy do you copy Nadal do you copy Federer do you copy Djokovic but obviously in the world of motorsport there's only Lewis for now but I think that analogy just sort of made me think well you just need to do what's what's right for you as those three greats in tennis have done great analogy are you a Djokovic, are you a Nadal? Are you a Federer man? <laughs> <laughs> and are you um, any good at tennis? Um, I, do you know what? I respect them all. I, I don't really have a, a standout favourite. I met Roger in Barcelona this year and he was such a great bloke. Was he enjoying that actually? He was in the garage. And yeah, he was in our debrief as well. <laughs> no, he, giving uh, some advice. Yeah, no, Tell him a bit later, George. He, was, <laughs> he, he said he was so impressed at how our group works together and the, the amount of detail and data we go through and you know the size of our team and for a athlete like himself you know his team is built solely around him and he uh, built his team effectively so he is the the athlete the leader the boss the everything of that whereas obviously for us there's so many different factors that come together to build that sort of great man and machine as such because it is once you're out on track it's driver and car but you need everything working on on four cylinders so you're a federer man uh yeah i, I like i like roger <laughs> i think he's a, he's a good bloke but what Nadal's doing at the moment is pretty pretty damn impressive and do you play tennis i used to play squash a lot i played badminton for the first time this year in malaysia it's the national sport i believe in in malaysia and petronas um, have a uh, they sponsor an academy in Kuala Lumpur so I went and played with with some of the players there and I and I really enjoy badminton and I think for I actually felt like it'd be quite good um, for a racing driver because you've got a the reaction time of the the shuttle sort of every single hit was so quick you're on your toes you're moving around quite a lot more than squash 
Well, I, I feel like with well squash, I had a few moments where my trainer Alej either had a racket in my face or a ball hit in my back. Um, so squash had its, it's dangerous. dangerous. <laughs> it had its dangers, um, and there's a huge amount of movement in squash. So sort of falling over on an ankle or something is it's a high chance. At least that we we look like headless chicken when we we played squash. But badminton, I thought was sort of kind of like a good compromise. So. Yeah, I want to kind of... You haven't mentioned tennis, so I don't think you're a tennis man. No, so yeah, long story short, I don't play tennis, no. (laughs) I play paddle sometimes, I like paddle. Paddle's great. Paddle is great. Charles Leclerc, Carlos Sainz, they all play it like a mad thing. I've just taken it up myself. Yeah, there we go. Courts in Bahrain. Yeah, indeed. Can I set you a challenge next time I'm in Bahrain? (laughs) Let's do it. That's another podium for Mr. Consistency. Nicely done, team. Well done. George, really red driven with the car that we've given you, really... Super happy how, how you drove the cup there. What about your relationship with your race engineer, Ricardo Moscone? How different is that compared to the one that you had with your guys on your car at Williams? My relationship's great, to be honest. I think what's helped me a huge amount was being part of this team. When I was a junior driver, I used to go for dinner every single race weekend with Ricky and the, the other engineering gang or the marketing department so knowing that you were joining the team or was this even before no this was this was before back in hanging out this was when i was a junior driver and reserve driver so back in 2017 18 um i'd be going to all of the events with mercedes as backup and on the evenings i'd be hanging out with the team going traveling with them in the cars in the morning i think that made things so much easier when i joined this team because i already felt part of the family but Ricky's um, such a great engineer he's got so much motivation and and hunger to um, push us to the top of our game and, and get absolutely everything out of our car so it's you know it's great to work with with these guys and I guess you've been working with Toto very closely since you became a Mercedes junior in 2017 but how has that relationship changed now that you're one of his race drivers it hasn't changed a huge amount. It's been really intriguing for me to see how Toto is involved on the technical front because, um, firstly, I, ne- I never quite knew how good his technical knowledge was, but you know he is fully involved in all of these technical meetings. He's really trying to push the whole team, and he, you know, he's a racer at heart. And I think having a leader who is not only as um, inspiring as he is and motivating and, you know, it's, everybody is clear what, what a great leader Toto is, but who also understands the technical side of things and can look at things a bit more rationally, maybe um, from afar, but actually asking the right questions, it goes a long way. What about his driving? Have you raced him yet? He thinks he's a bit of a driver, Toto. <laughs> I, I actually have, to be honest. We did an ice driving event at the start of this year in Austria. Uh, we were with a load of sponsors and the day finished at six and Toto and I stayed until nine. Uh, it was pitch black, but we had lights on this um we were driving a little rally car at the time. Unfair advantage. He's done some rally. Well, exactly, exactly. So he was doing some laps. I was a passenger and I had my iPhone out on the stopwatch uh, and then vice versa. And to be honest, I was pretty surprised at the pace he was, uh, the commitment and pace he was showing. There was, he probably went off a few more times than I did, but the pace was, was pretty strong. So, 
Yeah, learn, learning new stuff about him. Well, please, please tell me that you were faster than him. Yeah, I was faster okay. than him, but he, he claims that I did track limits on, I uh, cut the inside of a couple of corners, so he will probably claim that he was faster than me, but... Whatever it takes, Toto. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> now, look, what sort of a boss is he? I mean, is he generous at giving praise if you're doing a good job? And equally, what kind of a bollocking does he give? He's not one to praise 24-7. He's not always going to be bigging you up always and he'd always make a couple of jokes like I remember um, when I qualified second at Spa for Williams he'd actually just told me that I got the drive three days before and we'd had a few chats and then he called me on a Saturday night and he said that was alright but I thought he was going to be on pole so you know it's, it's that's a wind up it's <laughs> No, no, of course it was a wind-up, but that, that was it, you know, and that's um, that's his sense of humour. For him to say something like that, I know I know what he thinks deep down, and I, and I know that he was seriously happy with the performance, so he he, he does it in, in certain ways, as such, obviously he'll always pat me on the back whenever, whenever needed. I mean, like, I'm sorry to keep harping on about Canada, right, but after qualifying in Canada, you'd roll the dice, put the slicks on on that just before the crossover point what did he say after that yeah he was glad I did it he said I'd like to see a bold decision and um, he actually thought it was going to work uh, at the time so he we're not here as a team to sit around and settle for P3 P4 P5 you know we're here to win the championship we're here to fight for victories and we need sometimes big moments to show that we are here to fight we're not here just to settle and take the easy route, the easy decision. And I think as an organization, as a team at the moment, you know, we're kind of going through a similar thing that we're clearly not where we want to be, but we're doing everything we can to to bring this performance back. And we're not just going to accept our fate as such. We're going to sort of trust in ourselves, trust in the process. And there will be sort of tough decisions at points with, directions we have to take but we're not just going to sit here and accept well that's how it is and we might have got it a little bit wrong and the others did a better job than us and we'll come back stronger next year no we're going to come back stronger at Silverstone and that's the mentality that we will have I mean how confident are you of being stronger at Silverstone I mean all the Mercedes fans are hoping that it's going to be more more Barcelona than Baku certainly yeah I think it will be more Barcelona than Baku but I don't think there's any guarantees you know we've had some very good conversations even this morning and we feel like we've learnt a lot of things from Montreal that's going to point us in the right direction I don't think um, on sort of true pace we're going to turn things around straight away but I do think Silverstone will suit our car more than the previous three races I think there's a lot of similarities between Monaco, Montreal and Baku they're all very slow speed circuits. They're all pretty bumpy. The um, sort of robustness of the car is quite an important factor, you know, over those bumps, over those curbs. And we feel like that's something we lack a little bit at the moment. Whereas Silverstone should be a bit smoother, a bit more of a high speed circuit. Um, it will play slightly more in our favour, but ultimately Red Bull and Ferrari will still be ahead. There's been so much negativity about the W13, primarily because of the bouncing, not just because of where it's finishing on the racetrack. But let's not forget that you are still fourth 
in the Drivers' Championship, you, George Russell, and the team uh, is third in the Constructors' Championship. So this car must be good at something. <laughs> Can <laughs> we just talk through the strengths? Big up the W13 for us. I've driven worse cars. Um, I mean, actually, is this the best car you've ever driven? Because it's been a big step from Williams. To is it, I mean, obviously, I, I had the luxury of driving all of the previous iterations of Mercedes on test days, and I did the race in, in Bahrain, which, you know, that car was a, was a breeze uh, in comparison. But there are clearly strengths within our car. We, we're clearly good in our race pace, relatively speaking. I think we're the only team to close the gap to the front runners on a Sunday rather than the gap expanding. And when it's in the right window, the actual balance through the corners is pretty nice to drive. But when you're going down the straights and your teeth are rattling out and you're feeling every single tiny stone on the track and it rattles through your body you and lewis are the only two people who have experienced that can you describe in layman's terms we're the only like no, sitting on a jackhammer i guess let's um <laughs> let's rephrase this we're not the only two to have experienced this we're the only two generally talking about it at the moment because there's many other teams and drivers who don't want any change to any regulations in the coming years because they are competitive so there is a bit of a difference. So, yes, I, I know. I meant others, but it seems to me more extreme on your car. Is that is that fair? Um, yeah, I think I think we're we're not the worst. Um, I'd say we're, maybe we're equal worst, but there are definitely drivers and teams who are suffering a lot, and um, you can visibly see that when we watch on boards and and whatnot. But anyway, to put it into context, I recently rode around Hyde Park on a city bike that you pay a couple of pounds to rent for however long you need it. There's zero suspension, pretty rigid. And I rode over a sort of cobblestoned tarmac, incredibly old tarmac. And I was just sort of being shaken to bits. And I thought this kind of feels to a small degree what we're experiencing in the car. So Anybody who's ridden a bike over very bumpy terrain and everything sort of like shaking and rattling around kind of feels like that. Does it affect your ability to do the job behind the wheel in terms of judging braking points and racing other cars? Yeah, it does. It, it really does because um, our vision is being compromised every time you're, you're bouncing around down this straight. In back you, I can even see the my pit board I could see it but the the words were blurry the braking zones were blurry and it's just uncomfortable if you're trying to do a job doesn't matter what the job is and you're in a perfectly comfortable environment the job's easier than if it's in a horrible environment let's say and that's kind of what it feels like you're sort of at one with the car you're trying to be silky smooth with the tires and your steering and your braking inputs but when you're just being shaken around it sort of feels like you're on an uncomfortable roller coaster. I get it. It's, it's very uncomfortable. But have you and the team enjoyed the challenge of engineering your way out of this problem? Yeah, I think so. It's obviously the team have enjoyed some success over these years. And I think winning to a degree is easy because, you know, you, you, you arrive to a race weekend, the car's quick and it's good and there's a lot of work to do. But... Yeah, we're on the top of the timesheets. You go on the race weekend and you have the the victory. Yeah, great. You know, I feel 
great about myself and that was a great weekend of a team celebrating and taking photos with champagne bottles and, and whatnot but going to the racing the races and the results aren't where you expected and the car is truly underperforming and all of us having to really dig deep to understand what this is to a degree it has been sort of enjoyable to try and overcome these challenges in life if things come too easy you don't appreciate the success and you don't appreciate when things are great and I think it will make the success even sweeter when we achieve it. And what about the cars being stiffer anyway because of well some of the suspensions changed and of course we've got the 18 inch wheels now do you have to drive them differently compared to last year to extract the lap time i think you need to give the car more respect than you had to last year because you can't just rattle over these curbs every single bump you feel so if it's a bit of a bumpy circuit through corners in miami it was very bumpy you can't get on the power as aggressively as you, you'd want to. Um, so I think it was very logical why these regulations came into place with sort of the stiffness of the cars and some of the changes they made to simplify the cars. But equally, you know, we see our own data and we see the change from, from last year and it's absolutely substantial, the stiffness through all the corners and down the straights. And I think the FIA have got the data to be able to review what every other team is doing compared to themselves last year. So... Yeah, let's see what the future holds, really. Can we talk about the young guns now? Um, there's a real sort of rat pack of you guys who have just sort of come through. A rat pack? Well, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> sort of, I'm thinking of you and Lando and Charles and, and um, Alex. And I think we can include Max in that, the sort of the, the young guys coming through. How do you guys rub along together? Is there a good vibe in Formula One at the minute? Yeah, there's definitely a good vibe. I think there's a lot of sort of illusions that we're all best mates and and all of that we're obviously mates no doubt and we always talk with each other whenever we see each other but obviously when the helmet goes on you know we're fierce competitors we've had no reason and for the time being not to be friendly with one another you know we are rivals on track but the things that cause these greater rivalries are generally speaking on track incidents and for whatever reason none of us have had any disagreements or on-track incidents over over the years. I know Charles and Max maybe had a few in karting when they were battling, but you know, there's only 20 of us in Formula One. I think we will have a sort of mutual respect for one another because only, only we understand what the others are going through. And because we've sort of come through the ranks together over so many years, yeah, it feels like you're kind of like schoolmates as such. Does knowing them so well affect the way you race them? I wouldn't say it affects how you race them, but there's definitely trends, I would say, from all these drivers and, you know, how they go about their race weekends. There's been quite a consistent theme throughout their careers. Same As, habits, same foibles yeah, as they I'd had say all, so. all those years I'd ago. I'd say so, which is also quite intriguing in itself to see, so... I think we all know each other pretty well. Do you need to take up golf? It seems... Uh, are you, are you the mean, only one, you know... I, I, used to, I used to do golf, but I don't know where they get all the time from. I think their teams are being too easy on them with <laughs> the amount of time they get off. It looks like sunshine and glory for, for them, so... Um, Full-time golfer, part-time Formula 1 driver. Yeah, <laughs> I know, I know. No, it's... Um, I'd love to, but 
I'm too competitive. Whenever I do anything, I want to be the best. And um, golf, I know that I'm a long way from being the best and there's too many hours need to go in to uh, to get there. What is your relationship like with the older generation? So so the Lewis's obviously teammate know him very well, but what about Fernando and Sebastian and even Valtteri, I suppose we included in that? To be honest, again, there's a really strong respect between us all. Fernando and I have always been had a, a pretty good relationship and sort of good things to say about uh, one another. So I, you know, that meant a huge amount to me. And you've had a lot of dices together, haven't you? Yeah, I've had, you've had a few <laughs> dices with Fernando, which uh, which has been which has been great. And he's he's just a warrior, and you can sort of see that. Now, George, final thing I wanted to ask you about is you're clearly becoming a role model for people both inside and outside of motorsport. What does George Russell stand for when parents are looking at their kids and the kids are wearing the George Russell T-shirt or whatever the latest merch is that you've got going on? Merch dropping for Silverstone. Is that okay? <laughs> Good. <laughs> Glad we can help. Um, but what is, you know, what are the parents thinking in terms of their, their child is looking up to you and, and what do you stand for? What's, what is George Russell? That's a tough question, but I'd say I stand for hard work and dedication i think so many people wonder what it takes and they want to know the secret and what you did but ultimately for me it was just a lot of hard work a huge amount of uh, sacrifice along the way because i recognize you can't have it all it's almost as simple as that it's not as simple as that but it it almost is. And I think you've just got to go back to basics. Hard work, get your priorities right, and um, give it everything. Well, look, there's going to be lots of that merch in the crowd this weekend at Silverstone. Look, what would it mean? You've had four podiums in your career so far. Formula One career, I should add. What would it mean to do it again at Silverstone? It would mean a huge amount, but I want my first podium at Silverstone to be on the top step. So um, that's what I'm I'm absolutely going for. Not that I'd back off on the last lap if I was in second or third to not be on the podium. But, you know, Silverstone has such a, a fond place in my heart. It's where I won my first ever race. It's where I did my first ever race as well. Won it first race where I did my one of my first ever tests in a Formula One car. And just being my home race, the support, you know, it's huge. So I can't wait to get there and... I'll be giving it absolutely everything I've got. Best of luck in your home race. Thank you very much for coming on the show again. Thank you very much. Just imagine if George were to finish on the top step at Silverstone. The place would go mad. And while that might be a long shot right now, I believe George is that good. And what a fabulous chat. He has a very easy and engaging manner, yet there's also a ruthlessness simmering not far below the surface. He gives you the impression that he'll do whatever it takes to succeed, something that all winners have in common. George, many thanks for your time and best of luck with everything. As ever, please remember to send in your thoughts and stories on George, and I'll read out a few of them at the end of next week's show. Send them to me at TomClarksonF1 on Twitter or use the hashtag F1BeyondTheGrid. Which brings me on to what you sent in about Joe Guan Yu after last week's show. Many of you enjoyed hearing from him. And let's start with this from Griffin Anderson. 
As one of the episodes I was most looking forward to, Joe did not disappoint. Admittedly, I was someone who held minor reservations prior to the start of the 2022 season, but all doubts were replaced with fandom following the first race in Bahrain. Hearing his joy and excitement over team radio and post-race interviews displays just how much passion he has for this sport. It's hard to root against someone seemingly as genuine as himself. And listening to his Beyond the Grid interview, I became an even bigger fan after learning of his personal sacrifice and commitment on the road to Formula One. He's quickly proven that he's more than deserving of his seat, and I couldn't be more excited to continue watching his growth. Well, thanks for the note, Griffin. Great to hear from you and great to hear of your support for Joe. And what about this from Stephen Power? Great to hear from Joe. I'm a really big fan of his. Not many people in the world of sports have made bigger sacrifices than him. Leaving home at such a young age to move across the globe is hard to even contemplate, never mind actually do. Well, agree on that, Stephen. Joe has shown unbelievable commitment so far in his career. And thanks for the note, too. And finally, let's go down under to hear this from Andy Kelk. I've been following Joe since he first appeared on the Formula 2 podcast a few years back. He was kind enough to take a photo with me during the track walk in Melbourne this year, and he almost got a point that day. Good to see him doing so well in 2022. Well, thanks, Andy. And I like the pic that you've sent in of you and Joe as well. Well, that's almost it for this week. If you enjoyed hearing my chat with George and want to hear more about his early career, then why not check out his first appearance on the show? There's a link to it in the description for this episode. And hit the follow button and leave us a rating or a review if you have a moment. We love reading those. F1 Beyond the Grid is produced by Formula One and Audio Boom Studios. Until next time, keep it flat out.